I'm Mary Nightingale. Welcome to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand. This week, I'm with Amelia Harvey, co-founder of The Connective, the distinctive and delicious gourmet yoghurt brand. Welcome, Amelia. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. Now, look, from what I understand, you didn't actually set out, as, as many other entrepreneurs do, to start a gourmet yoghurt business. In fact, uh, there was a bit of luck involved, wasn't there? How did it actually happen? So I just finished a four-year stint at Goo Chocolate Puds, which was an incredible journey, and we just sold the business. And I knew from the journey that I was on going from corporate blue-chip businesses then into Goo that I really wanted to do my own thing, and I had that yearning for a long time. And as luck would have it, James Arvadeet, the owner of Goo, through friends met Offer and Angus, the chefs that started the collective in 2009. In New Zealand. In New Zealand. Mm. And it had gone incredibly well for them over over their first year of launch. And they knew that the yoghurt that they created wasn't really just for New Zealand, that there were people around the world that would enjoy this amazing taste. So James introduced Mike and I to Offer and Angus. We saw the product, we tasted the product, and we were just wowed. Um, there's nothing like it on the shelves. There was nothing that tasted like it, looked like it, talked like it in its tone of voice. And Mike and I knew we wanted to really work together. And, and really, it happened so, so quickly. This was November 2009, and we were on the shelves in, in 2010 within six months. So it was a really fast-paced meeting and enthusiasm for the brand when I first saw it. Well, we'll talk a lot more about the brand and indeed about Mike, who you mentioned there a little bit later on. But you know, are you actually an entrepreneur? Because if you didn't start something from scratch, some people might say, well, therefore, you're not an entrepreneur. You know, do, how do you define yourself? There's the entrepreneurial aspect of starting a business and having that seed idea. And obviously, Obford Angus dreamed up the most amazing tasting yoghurt and, and brand in the first place. But what we've uh, gone on to do within the UK and Europe is centre everything around the consumer, the retail environment and the entrepreneurial thinking and behaviours is how I would describe both the way that I lead and, and also the way that the business behaves. So how did this entrepreneurial streak actually form? It's really interesting and I'm, and I'm seeing it through through my son. My father's always had his own business and he's, he's done many different um, industries from engineering to computers, technology. And I think having seen how my son's responding to how I work and, and looking back on my childhood, I don't think you're born with it. I think you're exposed to it and, and, and you get the bug in some way, shape or form, whether it was seeing my mother and father working through the night, packing up computers to deliver to schools. Um, it was going in the car with my mother after school. It was seeing invoices being processed. And from 13, I was really, really interested in invoicing and finance and how you make money out of a, a sale between you know, buying something and selling it on. And I can see that in my son now. He's so um, fascinated by what I do and how the yoghurt is made and how we market it and the consumers and seeing it on shelves. And automatically, a few weeks ago, I was, I was in store and he starts merchandising it at Fixture without me saying anything. He's obviously seen me do it for the last... <laughs> what do you mean merchandising so it? He's, he's setting it out and making it, it look out, nice? Setting it out, bringing it out from the back of the shelf, making it all look nice, all, all nicely in a row, pushing the competitors back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's my boy. And he's and how old? He's nearly seven. So wow. I think there's there's an aspect of, of this, which is what you're exposed to and, and what interests you. So I, I don't think you're necessarily born with it. I think it's something that's sparked early on. 
But did you ever consider starting your own business straight out of school or university? Because you actually went a more traditional route, mm. didn't you, to begin with? Yeah, and I knew that I wanted to do that. So I did marketing at university and it was it was Kellogg's. I remember reading an advert in The Times when I was uh, just finishing uni. I was 19 or 20. And what intrigued me about Kellogg's is the advert in The Times was talking about own your own little area, your own business. So I started out as a, as a field sales representative and I was calling upon... 10 to 15 supermarkets a day, um, building up relationships with the store managers and getting as much exposure for Kellogg's and their cereals as possible. And I was really drawn to that because I knew I was going to get the training from Kellogg's, but also have this entrepreneurial aspect. And that's really when I look through the businesses I've worked for, even though they're huge businesses in in Kellogg's and L'Oreal, they were very entrepreneurial in terms of the way that they um, put autonomy on the teams and and gave you the responsibility to carve out your own role within the business. Okay. And how important were those experiences, do you think, of working for the the really big multinationals? Hugely important. So in Kellogg's, I was taught how to sell. I was selling, as I say, had 10 to 15 relationships a day and, and lots of businesses don't start uh, graduates now in the field. And I, I was able to have hundreds and hundreds of conversations, relationship building, influencing and being taught by the best salespeople within the UK and selling one of the one of the you know, most famous brands in the UK. And then within L'Oreal, and it's an incredible culture, an incredible business that runs like clockwork around the world. You're given very big responsibility. I had millions of pounds worth of um, trade marketing budget to spend with the retailers. I had millions of pounds worth of business to manage. And that was all from the age of 24. And the culture there was really, you know, slightly sink or swim but you 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 were you were around really really talented people of the same age it was great fun to be around we worked hard played hard and we were taught we had the most amazing training and that set me up for everything that I've done since so what have you taken out of those really big companies and actually applied to your own you would think actually the two wouldn't really be very comparable but perhaps they are the systems and processes within the business fascinate me of how do you run a business with thousands of people around the world? How is it led? How is it a rhythm on a monthly cycle to make sure the business runs optimally? I was exposed to systems, processes, data, um, ways of thinking, category thinking. So, so much I've taken from those businesses and then coupled with the entrepreneurial aspect and fast moving pace of a business like ours, the, the backbone of it is very much born out of what the corporate businesses do really well. But on the flip side, it also holds them back because they've got such big machines to run. Mm. You went on from L'Oreal and you went to the other end of the scale entirely because you joined Goo, didn't you? Yes. Very small in comparison, just £2 million of turnover then. It, it must have felt very different immediately, didn't it? Hugely different. And I I was drawn to goo, as probably most people are, through tasting the first time the chocolate souffle, the incredible chocolate pudding. Um, So that was number one when I saw the brand. And then again, seeing the description of what James was looking for from um, the sales controller that that I joined as. And then I was hugely drawn to James. He is your atypical entrepreneur thinking about product format. Um, dreaming up new new puddings all the time. And I was really drawn to his energy and passion and where he wanted to take the business. And I remember joining on day one and thinking of all the processes I had in, in the L'Oreal times and thinking there's none of this in place. And immediately I felt I was able to talk to the retailers in a way that L'Oreal would talk to them in a more grown-up, structured way. So I felt from day one I was having a, a, an immediate impact. And James was very, very good at building a team and 
that the team I worked with then, we were all young, we were all go-getters. He, he, he loved our passion and our rawness as well. We were still very, you know, I was 26 at the time. And the people I worked with then are, are really, really good friends of mine and they're all running different businesses. We're all in contact with each other and it was, it was such a special time. It, it's taught me about the pace, it's taught me about um, the entrepreneurial aspect of launching innovation really quickly and fast-paced. It's taught me about how you can work with a retailer to partner on an innovation programme. And it also taught me about bumps in the road and chilled foods. There's every single day something happens. And over that time, every day there would be an issue, but it was an issue that we would overcome. What sort of issues? Oh, things like lorries breaking down, uh, the machine not working, shorting the retailers, uh, the retailers ordering too much because it was it was selling so quickly. You just have to be so nimble. And I think that taught me that that was the norm. And so starting the collective, that behaviour wasn't new to me. So it wasn't like I was having to learn how to be resilient and how to deal with bumps in the road because it was inbred with me with uh, over the four-year period there. You learnt to expect the unexpected in a sense. Yeah, yeah. But it was also there that you met Mike Hodgson, yes. who, who went on to be your business partner and indeed co-founder of The Collective. So tell me about meeting Mike. So Mike actually interviewed me and he used to be James's boss back in the day. So both of them have worked um, in the dairy industry. And I remember... It was St Ivel, weren't they? St Ivel, yeah. He had an instant effect on me and I, I instantly liked him. And in the early years, probably for the first two years, he was my mentor and really mentored to James about growing the business. And it became, as we grew really, really strongly, James knew he needed to get somebody in to help him really navigate the growth of the business. And that's when Mike came on part-time initially, and then latterly as an MD. And I worked so closely with him at at my time in Goo. And what was it that he had that you felt you needed to, to set up the collective? We just had this lovely way of working where we thought the same, but we approached things differently. I'm ever the optimist, ever the this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and he's a bit more cautious. We just used to uh, chew the fat. Um, we used to just think about different ways that we could do things, and we just had this this great relationship in terms of how we went out and divided and conquered. And, and we knew as Goo was coming to an end and we sold the business that we just knew that we wanted to find something to do together, which is how we ended up working together at The Collective. How did the timing work? Yeah, so when we when we sold the business, I'd committed to the new owner that I was going to work for, for six months, and in that time I was really thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I knew from the experience of Goo I was ready to, to start something. And starting something, either conceiving something from scratch, Mike and I looked at all sorts of things, from cleaning products to drinks to snacks, and that's when I mean, we, we started talking about the luck element of it. It just all clicked into place really, really quickly. All right, so The Collective then. Tell me about what exactly it is, what it does, where you can buy it, how it tastes, what the (laughs) idea behind it was. So The Collective was originally born out of the idea from Angus and Offer that they could create, as chefs, the best-tasting yoghurt in the world. And they were living in New Zealand at the time, and Australia has lots of these um, great-tasting yoghurts, and they thought they could do that in New Zealand. They bought a a little dairy outside of Auckland and they spent ages perfecting this recipe and they knew they needed to get it to taste amazing. So they were playing with the cultures, playing with the incubation periods and then they cracked the recipe and at the same time worked with a branding agency and talked to them about their vision of of creating this dairy brand. And so for them it happened over about a nine-month period and then they, they created the brand. It went on the shelves in New Zealand and was extremely successful. 
And the branding's all about having an open, honest relationship with the consumer and talking to them in a very personable, human way. So when Mike and I saw the brand and we could see the gap in the market, we were looking, we knew the yogurt market well because we were operating next to it in desserts. And and really it was, yogurt's been quite pharmaceutical. It's been quite functional, if you think about the brands that were on the shelves. They're quite white bit a bit serious and nobody was having fun with yogurt and we and we thought well this is this is a gap but at the same time 80% of the market is dominated by brands that have millions and millions of pounds worth of of money to spend so very early on even before signing the joint venture with Offer and Angus we went to see Sainsbury's and Waitrose and talked to some of our contacts there showed them the product and said do you believe in our vision do you believe that there is this gap in the market for this amazing tasting fun bright tasty brand and they absolutely got that and and were really really supportive to us and said go go and create this go and bring it back to us when you're ready and we think this is this is something that will be huge within you know, the next few years. So you had the encouragement from, from the supermarkets to begin with. I mean, could you have done it, do you think, if you didn't have that to, to, to give you a bit of optimism to take you through? I think it's the relationship with the supermarkets is is absolutely key. And I see so many amazing products and people just don't know how to get their foot in the door. So one element of it was the relationships that we had with the retailers. And these are relationships that Mike and I had had you know, formed over many, many years with the supermarket. So that was definitely a foot in the door, a leg up the ladder. Um, but I think just talking to them and involving them in the development of the, the yoghurt, we showed it to them along the way. Um, Waitrose were very very keen to give us feedback on the layers of the product, the taste of the compote. So they were very involved, really, from the incubation of the brand. And so so I guess where we are now, we're in 5,000 supermarkets. We've got pretty much three separate businesses. We started off with all things gourmet and indulgence, and those are our big pots with the black lids and the the lovely flavours like Russian fudge and and raspberry and passion fruit. And then we went into kids' yoghurt, so we've got a range of pouches called suckies. And... Over the years, that's formed into quite a, a big and a huge growing um, kids brand, which now, with the focus on sugar, allows us to have a very natural low sugar brand. So that's another kind of area. And then you've just tried our, our new kefir range, which is all about health and it's all about gut health. And it's all about gut health being being very, we're, we're talking in an emotional way rather than functional way. So what, what you just drunk has, has got a like, nice, bright logo we talk in a really fun way and it's not in a, in a pharmaceutical way so we saw this gap and then we've been able to develop these kind of three parts of our business and strands of our business across the yogurt aisle when you talk about the relationship with the supermarkets mm. and it was obviously something that you had built up through your experience with Kellogg's and, and L'Oreal and so on and, and, and obviously through Goo. But what would your advice be to other entrepreneurs who are thinking about trying to enter this sort of area who are terrified of the supermarkets because mm. they do have a pretty intimidating reputation, don't they? How do you approach them? Well, they've the, the supermarkets have cottoned on to the fact that the consumer's behaviour is changing. So the millennial behaviour has driven the shopping behaviour really of all ages. So the millennials really want to buy from brands that are honest, that are transparent, that aren't hiding anything. So the supermarkets have had to set themselves up in a way that they can be easy to do business with, with people that are starting out that might have amazing products but don't know how to contact them. So most of the supermarkets now have a nurturing area within them which make them easy to contact. So Sainsbury's, Tesco, Waitrose, they have this 
um, almost like a bit like a dragon's den that you can go in and show your products. And then the way that the buyers have, have worked is that they found a way to make it really easy to then get a listing with, with the retailers. So it's a sort of quid pro quo for both of them. So it's, it is actually easier than ever now to knock on the door of a supermarket through their nurturing and smaller brands process. So tell me about the path to seven million. When I think back to the first seven million, firstly, I think of the two of us at two desks with two phones, two laptops and a blank table. And I really remember it vividly of just we had to start something from absolutely nothing. And I know we had the relationships with the retailers, but it was the first year on the phone all the time, hustling, hustling, hustling to get those listings. And we did all sorts from take our little van out to do sampling events. Mike's wife did all of our customer care for many, many years. So anyone that wrote in to us would get a handwritten note back from her. We did sampling events. We did um, sampling in stores. We did PR. And we just did lots and lots of things to see what worked. And it was a hard, hard graft. And I think the, the route to 7 million and the approach that an, a small challenger brand would take versus a, a huge corporate, a huge corporate can afford to go on TV or to have billboard posters. Now, that gets huge awareness very quickly, but it doesn't mean that you've got concrete foundations. We literally built layer upon layer upon layer to build up our turnover. And, and to get to 7 million took four years. And it was all about trying different things, mainly sampling and getting people to try our product and loving it and gaining the loyalty and then them telling all their friends about it. Have you tried this yogurt? And we're still quite a relatively unknown brand for our size. And a lot of our you know, first contact with people is through word of mouth. And that that was the same with Goo. And I, I just feel that's a much more solid foundation than turning on a TV ad that we would never, ever be able to afford. So in the flip part of it, everything's been about making the products look as best they can on shelf, have the best packaging, the best branding, the best tone of voice. And we don't have much money to work with, so we have to be really clever with the way that we build the brand. You're listening to The Piper Podcast. This time I'm talking to Amelia Harvey, co-founder of The Collective. How soon did you realise that you had a success on your hands? Well, Mike and I always said that if we could get to five million, that would give us a really, really strong platform for for growth. And then we we saw twenty million in our sites for how big we thought we could build the brand. So, getting to the seven million in in terms of the way that that Piper think about the the growth took four years. So we did one, two and a half, four and a half, then seven, and. For the last eight years, it's just been constant growth and, and looking forward and, and thinking about new ways to grow, new products to, to launch, new outlets to be stocked in. So it hasn't ever felt different in terms of the different chapters. It's just always been about forward-looking growth. You had some challenges from retailers that didn't want to come on board. Did you ever have any product challenges? Was there ever an area that you went into that you thought, hang on, this is not working at all? We bought out drinks probably in about year four or five, and they were very cutting edge at the time. They were yoghurt drinks with chia seeds and they had acai berries and they were quite ahead of their time and we just put them into too many stores too quickly. I guess the the, the culture of our business is to fail fast. So if something's not working, we'll be the first to put our hands up to the retailers and say, look, this isn't going to work. We're going to take it off the shelves, rethink it. And then ironically, you know, three years later, we, we, we dreamed up the kefir drinks that have gone on to be an incredible success over the last year. So we never see 
failure as real failure is just a learning and we're, and we're the first to put up our hands and, and say if something isn't working and the retailers have really uh, respected that from us of not waiting for them to say do you know guys this isn't working we're normally the first to have that conversation so you're watching all those figures like a hawk and and you spot it and you're you get in first do you and absolutely so so we get what's called epos which is the sales through the till every week from the retailers and we're all over that data we're very for, for an entrepreneurial business and a, a smaller business we're all over the data we can immediately see within a week or two of a product hitting the shelves of whether it's going to work or not and we've just got better at um, thinking about elements of the products we, we mock up packaging we put it on shelves we talk to consumers about it to make sure that the mistakes we've made in the past we won't repeat again it's not to say everything's going to work but we probably are more confident on launching new products than, than we would have done in the past um, it wasn't all plain sailing, though, was it? 2015, um, your business partner, your co-founder, Mike Hodgson, um, tragically died while on a cycling holiday in the Lake District, the age of 57. I mean, an enormous blow mm-hmm. to you and obviously his family. But how on earth did you deal with that? It was an incredible shock, and Mike was extremely fit and, and always out on his bike and running up mountains, so it was an incredible shock, and... Yeah, I, I, I guess you know, I'm still look back to that period and, and probably don't remember lots of it. I just had to put one foot in front of the other at the time and I had his family to think about, had the team to think about. I had his voice in my head about how I just needed to keep going and, and I think I just survived. Mm. At the time, you know, I tried to be really, really strong, but I think learning from, from that period, it's fine to be vulnerable. We're all going through the same thing. And many of the team now are are with me and I think it's created the most distinct culture in that we're all so tightly there together and looking after each other. And as I said before, Mike's wife has worked for us for for many years doing our customer care, so she was fully ingrained in the business. All his children have worked for the business as well as they've they've grown up. Um, His daughter's just finished uh, a marketing stint with us. So... You know, we we just had to cope, all of us, and just had to to move forward. And and for me, he he was such a huge part of why we started everything together. But I also knew I, I had to see that through for 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 all of our sakes. And the loss of Mike has has um, inspired the company to actually donate, hasn't it? To, to Heartbeat. Tell me about that. When we were thinking, well, how can we how can we celebrate Mike within the business? How can we do something good? So we we decided to launch a limited edition of his most favourite product, which was Plum and Honey. He was always going on to us about we need to launch Plum, we need to launch Plum, and we were we had a bit of banter about it, and we're saying no, 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 we're not going to launch it. So we created this lovely Plum and Honey, just the way that he made it in the kitchen, and he made it many times to to show us, to convince us to try and launch it. And so we did this limited edition and gave profits away from every pot sold to Community Heartbeat, which is an incredible charity um, who are converting disused phone boxes and putting defibrillators in. So we've done 25 around the country. We we put one in very near to where, to where Mike lives in the Lake District, and then we had, we've got defibrillators in villages from where the team live. We also asked our consumers where they would like to see them. And I think with um, with cardiac arrest, if you've got a defibrillator nearby, the chances of survival um, are hugely increased. We've got one in the office, so we're all... Um, we're all trained up on how to use it. So 
it was it was important for us um, to have something tangible that we could see and feel and and, and raise money and, and and do good that way. Okay, so so back to the company itself now. You I, I you've referred to it. I know you're aware. Piper believe that there are these three critical stages in the growth cycle of a business, and that they call seven seventeen seventy. Where are you in that cycle? So we're tracking at around 40 million in retail sales. Um, so we don't, that is, our turnover is a bit less than that. I, I actually think this, this period we're in at the moment is, is a crossroads. We, we've gone from 20 people last year to just about higher, my 39th person in the team. And I think the size of the team and the, the size of the turnover at this stage, you're going really from small, medium to a medium serious player and I so think you've passed through seven and 17 basically yeah so I, I would say it's I, I think the seven you've got a platform for growth and then you've got this huge wave of you know enthusiasm and growth and and around this point when you when you go from I think around the 30 people mark you've got to change the way that you work you can't be a verbal culture anymore you can't rely on everyone hearing everything in the office and I think over the last year the thing that's um, keeps me up at night, and the thing that I think about all the time is how do we, how do we work together as a business in an entrepreneurial way with so many people, and how we set up for success. How do we stop siloed thinking that the sales team only talk to each other and the marketing team only talk to each other? And lots of what we've done over the last year is found a way of working that allows us to move forward at pace, be agile, and do all the things that we've been famous for. So, how do you prevent? different teams being inward looking mm. and not communicating properly mm. how Look, I, i've gone from doing everything in the business from you know even a year ago being i guess the quasi cfo i've only had a, a real cfo for the last year i've had to go from everything from selling the products to designing the products tasting the products and you know a very very small team to now stepping back and really giving the autonomy and responsibility to the team and my role's changing and i i have to be very clear on where we're going as a business. I have to provide that leadership and passion about the business and the drive and the helping the team being resilient and tenacious at the same time and not getting caught up with these bumps in the road. So clarity and reinforced clarity again and again really helps the team. The other thing that we do is when we're working on projects is that we have somebody from every team coming in on that project right up front. So if we're looking at a new product launch, we'll have somebody from finance, from sales, from supply chain, from marketing, from product development. And somebody within that team will lead that project through. We also do hot desking so that the teams aren't siloed in the way that they sit. And we all eat together at lunchtime. So it does feel like we're all in it together. And we do always communicate and over communicate we have weekly meetings where we're, where we're updating each other on what's going on and then we have a monthly meeting where we're sharing all of the financial aspects and where we're hitting our, our targets and we're really open about that we have a very transparent P&L everybody knows how we're performing what we're spending how the business is progressing and I think that's what people they, they crave that in a business. They don't want to think that there's things going on behind closed doors. They want to feel like they're all in it together. When we were talking about entrepreneurial behaviours earlier, I want the team to feel like they are all their own entrepreneurs and they've all got this area that they own that they can put their absolute own touch on the area that they're responsible for. Do you find delegation easy? I think a few years ago that was where the biggest challenge was for me. Of I was so ingrained in it, I was so in the detail. And now... I I have managed to let go, I hope, and um, 
and, and try and be more supportive rather than in at the detail. But mm. at the same time, there'll be elements of the business that I will have done the detail on it and I can help and support the team through that. And what's interesting is you do seem to combine this. You know, you mentioned your son who loves merchandising. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a question I hesitate to ask female entrepreneurs and, and I... And I hope that I ask the men equally because, you know, there is a balance, isn't there, between trying to run a family, trying to run a business, trying to trying to keep everything in some sort of equilibrium. Mm. I, th- I think I'm used to not feeling like everything's done. I can remember when when I first had my son, it was in year one and a half of the business. I'd forgotten to tell Mike how to use the bank account. I had to do payroll three days later. <laughs> I just had a, had a baby. So, and so I obviously wasn't delegating very well back then. Um, but I think by having by having a child, you have to cut off. You have to have that de- part of the day at 5.30 or 6 to go home and do bath time and switch off. And it's, it's great to have that switch off time. And then I, I might have to go back and do bits in the evening, but I think it does bring that balance. And it, it, you know, I see people starting out now, and they work, they can work twenty four hours a day because there's nothing's ever done. I think you have to be comfortable with the fact that um, just this comfortableness of you know things not being complete and and uh, all done perfectly. You seem a very certain person. Do you ever doubt your vision? Do you ever doubt your view of the direction the business should go in? I'm hugely passionate about what what we're trying to create and the momentum that we've and the journey that we've been on over the last eight years. And you know, I love how supportive the retailers have been and they see our vision of where we can build a really big business over the next you know, five years. So I, I absolutely believe with conviction of, of that vision and where we want to go. But I don't know the journey that's going to get us there. So all, all the time I'm doubting about how we're going to get there and, and, and thinking and I've got, you always have this niggle about are we there, are we making mistakes, have we done the right thing, are we creating the team in the right way and I just, I guess I've been comfortable of knowing that it, nothing's perfect and you can always make things better and as the team changes in size and the ways of working I want to, them to be happy, I want them to come to work for more than just a job and so that is a constant niggle. So I'm con- I've got conviction with where we want to get to, but I just I don't know how we're going to get there. Um, and that's the unknown. And that's the that's the challenge that we all face as a team as to to how are we going to do this? How are we going to do things differently? And that's really exciting. Who mentors you now? Do you take advice from different people along the way? Yeah, absolutely. James is still a very good friend of mine and, and, and all the people I worked with during my goo times. And the food industry is a really inviting place to be. And from a networking point of view, people helping each other, bigger brands, smaller brands, I'm so open to that. And I think if you, you, know, if you, if you involve yourself in that and help each other, we're not all competing in the same area. There's no need for, for worrying about the competition. I think it's a really, really supportive industry. I think it's really important to have a mentor. I th- I'm happy to mentor people, and I, I, I look for mentors um, who can help me across many areas. So, so you have several mentors, would you say? Over the over over the last few years, I've had different mentors. I've got a, a business coach at the moment, and I've got an incredible chairman who's been in the food industry for years. He came on board about a year and a half ago, so he he's been a, a real sounding board for for just looking in through in the future as to to how we develop and grow as a business. So what role does the the chairman play in the in the day-to-day running of the company or less hands-on than that? 
less hands-on. I think um, he knows that we can do the day-to-day and run the business day-to-day. Um, a lot of it, when we're getting together, is looking at the future, is looking at and painting that picture of where do we want to be in three years' time and how do, how do we get there? And that's all about the structure of the business. It's all about the team, how the team are feeling, how the team develop, how they, have they got the right um, tools in place to allow them to, to develop and grow forward. And then also how, how do we develop the brand as we get bigger, what forms of marketing and what, how do we market that brand and, and make people more aware of the brand? Not just in the UK, are, are you anymore? No, so we've got three different businesses. So we've got a business that's um, maturer in New Zealand, but it's a hotbed of innovation. We've got our own kitchen, so we try new products there and try it in the market. And then we just launched in Australia. So that go, I was there last week, and it, it, it reminds me so much of the early days of of launching in the UK and having those first initial con- conversations with consumers, partnerships with retailers. And it's, an ex- it's a really exciting place to be. They're a team of five and, and, and creating a brand for the first time in a country. So um, you know, they're very much a growth business. And then we're on a, still a growth business, but a much bigger business and trying to, to grow the business in, in the UK and Europe. 2018, you took the decision to take on outside investors, didn't you? And so you've got this Australian business now and merged that with the UK business. Why did you want to take on investment? Mike and I had a joint venture with Offer and Anger. So we operated under a joint venture structure for, for seven years. And they obviously owned the, the New Zealand business and we knew we were going to launch into Australia. So part of the investment was to allow shareholders that had invested early on to, to exit. And it was to really form a group so it's really, I guess, structured us in a way that's more grown up and it's um, we've got a lovely rhythm to it, have uh, monthly board meetings. We meet up twice a year face-to-face. We've got the geographical challenges of a number of thousands of miles between us. So it's, it's just brought us all together in a, in a more kind of grown-up structure. My big focus for, for the year ahead is to, with a new team coming together, it's to make them feel like they own the business and they're the entrepreneurs of the future and I I want people to be able to learn like I learned at Goo a lot of young talented people are joining the business that have visions of wanting to to start their own company and nothing would make me more happy than to to train them in in seeing how a business has grown and developed so it's really giving the team the platform to learn and grow it's giving them a job that's more than a job that has good benefits and a great place to work and it's just continuing to have great conversations with the retailers about what they're looking to do within the yogurt aisle and how we can help and partner them grow as well. How does success feel? You know, when I'm, I'm thinking back to the, the little girl sitting in the car with mum and dad helping to deliver things or, you know, watching with fascination, munching chocolate bars and, and, and just tagging along and being fascinated. How, how does it feel to have achieved the success that you have achieved? I really don't think of it like that. And I, I think it's, as you say, you know, sitting there and grappling with, you know, what the world of business and, and being and learning and being more, more curious. I never feel like the job's done. I never look, really look back that much. It's it's about looking forward. I don't really define success. For me, success is going into 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 the office and, and, and having a laugh along the way and creating something really good and, and different and we've got uh, we're, we're so lucky in the, the fact that the consumer really wants to have conversations with us whether that's through Facebook or Instagram phoning us up in the office writing to us 
And we all feel really lucky that we have that connection. So we don't feel like we're operating a business and we've got a big gap between us and the consumer. They want to talk to us and they are so lovely with their comments and and we just want to make people happy. We want to have a happy brand, a happy team and, you know, not take ourselves too seriously because at the end, you know, we're creating something fun. You're never financially um, motivated at all. Um, I mean, from, from a personal point of view, I'm, you know, I'm not out there to you know, want more than just a roof over my head, and you know, just have to be able to go on nice holidays, or yeah, you know, it's it that that financial drive. Yes, obviously, you know, growth and and the profitability and a profitable business. But I think if we stick to our knitting and we create this business, I mean, it, it, I suppose it does sound a bit superficial with saying the happiness I don't element. think it sounds superficial. I just think it sounds idealistic, but maybe that's OK. I don't know. I, I think alongside that, though, if we're creating something that consumers want and that they want to buy, then the financial elements all come with that as well. And I think that's how we've managed to grow because the supermarkets aren't going to give us more space if people aren't buying it and buying it more and more. So we have to make sure they want to buy it. So we create products that they want to buy there is that element of you know fun about it and hopefully that delivers the financial result at the same time what advice would you offer to other entrepreneurs who are looking to set out on on a similar journey I mean I guess when I talk about the story it all sounds quite simple and looking back over things over eight years you can sort of think about the good times and 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 the, the bad times it's an absolute roller coaster. The highs are high and the lows can be low. And it's 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 hard work. Um, but when I look now and I'm looking at the products in front of me, it's you know it's something to be really proud of and and it is really fulfilling. But I wouldn't go into it without the uh, the knowledge that it's gonna have an incredible impact on the life of you and everyone around you. Mm. What would Mike make of it, do you think? Um <laughs> It's hard to answer that. Uh, I hope he would be proud of what we built and I think we built it to a size that both of us could, could ever dream of. And you know, The other thing he taught me about was wine and I would love to be sitting having you know, lovely Pinot Grigio from, from New Zealand with him looking back. Um, and so I guess that's a sad element that we can't reflect on it together. Mm. Amelia Harvey, thank you so much. Really interesting talking to you. Thank you.